Coming up, this case will be solved. Aaron, Jim, and Bobby deserve justice. Their friends, their family, this community deserves justice, and they will get it. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Sunday, January 27th, 2002. It's just before midnight, as Aaron Gola and James Springer, closing employees at a bowling alley in Littleton, Colorado, get ready to lock up. There's only one other person inside, Bobby Zayats, who is bowling, as he waits for Springer to finish up and give him a ride home. Until somebody else comes in with a gun. Tragically, James, Aaron, and Robert were confronted by a perpetrator and subsequently shot to death. The shooter would get away, leaving three families and an entire community without answers. But he may have left something behind. And now, 19 years later, investigators are hopeful that it may lead them to an arrest. Littleton police believe that they are actively looking into the case, now reviewing and retesting evidence. They're using new technology. This community, especially the families of James, Aaron, and Robert, deserve answers. Joining me is Janet Orovitz with Nine News in Denver, Colorado. And Janet, before we get into the recent news about this case, take us back to where it all began. What happened on the night of January 27th, 2002 at this bowling alley in Littleton, Colorado? Sure. So this was AMF bowling on South Broadway in Littleton. And it was a Sunday night just before or just after closing time, 11 o'clock at night. And there were uh, two employees there. Aaron Gola was one and James Springer was the other. And they had just finished uh, the night. They were finishing up the closing operations. And there was one other person there, Bobby Zayak. He was, um, he worked at another bowling alley, but he was there that night bowling. And he was there waiting to be given a ride home by James Springer, who was the assistant manager there. Um, so they they were done. Aaron called her roommate to come give her a ride home. Police said that was around 1140 that night. Um, about 10 minutes later, someone, a witness, uh, presumably the person who came to pick Aaron up, but we don't exactly know who that is. Um, they saw someone leaving uh, the bowling alley there. About five minutes later, the roommate was outside. You know, Aaron didn't come out. So she went inside to the bowling alley and then discovered um, all three of them had been shot. Tell me a little bit more about the three victims. They all knew each other, it sounds like. Yeah, so, I mean, they did know each other. I mean, I don't, I believe uh, James and Aaron both had not worked there that long, but obviously James and Aaron did work together. Um, and and so Aaron, she worked there as the cashier. We know that she had two young children who were, uh, two daughters who were three and six. And so, it's you know, if you think about it now, 19 years later, it's actually They'd be about the same age she was when she was murdered. Um, mm-hmm. And James, he he had actually just relocated to the Denver area from Utah with his wife, and he also had two young children. Um, Bobby Zayas, he was he did not have any children. He was obviously a little bit younger than the other two victims, only twenty three years old. Um, but he was an avid bowler. You know, he worked at another bowling alley. Um, he was just there at this one at night bowling. Um, and he actually had been uh, amateur. He won the amateur bowling competition in 1997. So bowling was a big part of his life. 
And as you mentioned, all of them were young. All of them were in their 20s. And thinking about that just adds to how tragic these killings were. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, I think uh, they ranged in age from 23 to 29. You know, two of them had young families. And really, you know, we don't know a specific motive for this crime, but they they have said, you know, that they believe this was an attempted burglary. So there's also like that tragic aspect of it that by all accounts, it seems to be that, that it was random, you know, that they just happened to be working there that night and weren't specifically targeted. Obviously, we don't know because they haven't found their killers, but that's what it appears at this point. There was, you mentioned someone seen leaving the bowling alley after the shooting. Does that mean we have a description of the potential or or likely perpetrator from this witness who saw him? So, you know, unfortunately, the description of that they have is is not that great. You know, obviously it was late at night, so we can assume that it it would have been dark. And this person, the only description they've, they've been able to provide is that it was a white man medium build uh, with a shaved or bald head and then you know which might also indicate that he might be considered a suspect in this is that you know he was wearing a knee length uh, dark colored trench coat at approximately 11:50 p.m. a middle-aged white male with a bald head and medium build was seen exiting the bowling alley wearing a dark colored below the knee trench coat And then he he got into a dark-colored black truck uh, and left the area. And so if the motive was then, in fact, burglary, that someone came in um, looking for for money or something like that and then ended up shooting these three people, do we know what, if anything, was actually taken from the bowling alley? You know, we don't. um, You know, police have never, you know, they, they tend to, like, not provide that type of information. But when it initially happened back in 2002, they did say that there was a safe in a back office that had been opened. So, you know, we can infer, assume that they probably took some money from that safe, but I haven't heard any, they haven't provided any specific information about like an amount of money that was taken that night. Sure. And there was something that happened at the bowling alley just the week before that police think might be connected to to what happened on this night? Yeah, that's true. So uh, one week prior, actually, exactly one week on January 20th, 2002, which would have been another Sunday night, um, police have said there was an attempted burglary that night. Um, and they believe that that incident is probably very likely related to this incident that one week later resulted in the deaths of three people. Good morning. My name is Chief Doug Stevens of the Littleton Police Department. Here with me today is Michael Schneider, FBI Special Agent. Two decades the then go by, and we get to just the beginning of this year in mid-February. There's a press conference. Was there any indication before this press conference happened as to why authorities were holding this press conference now, so long after this happened in 2002? You know, there really wasn't. It was. What's a little bit odd to me is that. They initially had planned on having this press conference on January 27th of this year, which obviously that would coincide with 19 years to the day to when the crime was committed. But for some unknown reason, the day before that press conference was supposed to happen, so on the 26th, they sent out that they were postponing this. Um, and I went, I reached out to police because I thought that was a little bit weird. And they, you know, they really wouldn't say what they they couldn't give me any information. They were like, I can't discuss why this has been postponed but we're going to reschedule it as soon as possible. So fast forward to, I think it was three weeks later, mid-February, to go ahead and do this press conference. And 
you know, they didn't really give a lot about the details about what they were going to discuss. I mean, there were some people that, you know, they, they said were going to be there. So we were kind of able to infer like what they might be talking about, but they really didn't say if it was anything other than to, um, put more attention, new attention on the case. What is it then that we do ultimately learn from this press briefing? So one of the things that we learned from it is that, you know, they, they found DNA at the crime scene. And, you know, they didn't come out and specifically say that, but what they did say is that they're working with a company with that does genetic genealogy. And so we know that they found DNA somewhere at the crime scene, and this DNA, they believe, must have come from the suspect. Technology that was not available at the time of the crime has allowed us to develop new investigative leads. Cases once thought unsolvable are now within reach thanks to advances in DNA analysis and genealogy work. So that was kind of a big thing to come out is that they have DNA that they believe belongs to the suspect. And did they say anything at all about where that DNA may have come from, what items they were testing or retesting, anything along those lines, or just that this hint that we have evidence that may lead us to the person who did this? Right. You know, they they didn't specifically say where that DNA was or where they might have found it. But one thing that struck me as interesting, again, was that they said that they're retesting every everything that all items, evidence that was found at the crime scene. Um, but they specifically mentioned that they were looking at items that were found in the trash can of the men's restroom at the bowling alley. Investigators are reviewing and retesting evidence, including items from the trash can in the men's room, as well as other areas on the property. Now, we don't know what they may have found in that trash can, but just based on they said that, you know, we can infer maybe that that, that might be where they could have found DNA from the potential suspect. One thing that I thought was interesting when I watched this press conference was uh, the the local district attorney was there and he pointed to a few other cases that have been solved through different advances in DNA technology. And he actually pointed to another local case that Nine News has covered, the 1980 murder of Helene Brzezinski. And I know that was a big story in Colorado that was solved just last year through this new DNA technology, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I I guess for those who might be listening that don't know what genetic genealogy is or how it works. So the real quick synopsis of it is that they will take DNAs found at a crime scene and compare it to DNA samples that have been uploaded, uploaded to public databases. And this, you know, when you think about a public database, if you don't know what that is, it's like if you submit your DNA through 23andMe or another one of those places to kind of find your family tree. And so police are able to compare the crime scene DNA to samples in there. And the goal is to find uh, probably not the suspect, because presumably if you've (laughs) committed some crime like this, you're not uploading your DNA. Um, But maybe it's to find a distant relative. And this could be like, you know, a fourth, fifth cousin, maybe someone that the suspect has never even a relative they've never even met. And then from there, they just kind of create a family tree and go back and try to find a relative who might fit the person they're looking for, like, you know, a white man in middle-aged who would have lived in Littleton in 2002. And that's where that eyewitness description could, I imagine, be really helpful, where they know, you know, sort of what the guy looked like, that he was, at least based on this witness account, that he was a middle-aged white man who was balding, which if you're looking at a string of of relatives and one of them is bald, that's that's a tip-off to maybe look at that guy a little closer. Right, exactly. Or if you're like, oh, this person 
is what's living in Littleton, Colorado, or somewhere in that general vicinity um, around that time frame. You know, that can really help them like narrow down who they're looking for. And specifically working on this case is a company that was founded by a, a former Denver prosecutor, and the company is called United Data Connect. How are they involved in this? How is their work on this case being funded? Can you tell me anything about that? Yeah. So since they've been founded, as you mentioned, they've worked on a couple other cold cases here in the Denver metro area. Um, here in Colorado, Denver Metro Crime Stoppers, they're uh, obviously a, a nonprofit group. Um, they they uh, get funded by donations. And they are actually footing the bill um, to, to help fund United Data Connect's uh, involvement in this case. Um, and they've also, through Metro Denver Crime Stoppers, they are, there's a $30,000 reward in the case that they just announced uh, this month as well. In watching this press conference, it does also sound like this new DNA technology or whatever new evidence they have, that's not the only avenue they're pursuing, that they're even planning to re-interview old witnesses. As you mentioned, they're putting up that reward in the hopes that it might generate some new leads. So it seems like they're sort of trying to to pursue multiple paths at the same time in the hopes that they'll all lead to a suspect. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. They did say that they've already conducted a bunch of new interviews and they said that they, you know, will be doing that in the near future saying, Hey, if we've talked to you in the past, thank you for talking to us. We'll probably be reaching out to you soon. And they've also encouraged people who may have never come forward and talked to them at all to come forward. Now, I think one of the things that was interesting to me is, you know, it's been almost two decades or, you know, 19 years here. And of course, you would think that that would be a hindrance for their investigation because, you know, people forget things, memories might not be as great. But one of the things the investigator said is that, you know, that can also be an advantage, whereas maybe in 2002, somebody didn't want to turn their friend in. And maybe, you know, 19 years later, maybe those people aren't friends anymore. Their relationship has changed or, you know, they might not feel as guilty about turning this person in because they're not maybe as close to this person as they were 20 years ago. It is sometimes the case that people who may have knowledge initially do not come forward due to their close relationships with those who may have been involved, as well as their reputation and standing in the community and among friends. We recognize relationships change over time, as do people and their perspectives. It is not too late to come forward. One other thing that investigators drove home in this press briefing is just the impact that this crime has had on the Littleton community. They said when something like this happens there, that it really touches everyone. Can you speak a little more on that and, and anything else that you've found going back through Nine News coverage of these killings? Yeah. So, I mean, especially you can see it, it was a bowling alley. Obviously, two of the employees worked at this AMF bowling. One of the employees worked at another bowling alley. And so, you know, specifically among the bowling community, there was the company organized a memorial for all three victims. Um, on the day of that memorial, a couple of days after the killings, all of the area bowling area alleys were closed from, I think, noon to four, so they could all go and attend this memorial service for these victims. And, you know, this is Littleton, Colorado, and I think, you know, a lot of people unfortunately think of the Columbine shooting in 1999, but, you know, it's really a smaller, tight-knit community, and and big crimes like this don't really happen there. You know, this is a, a triple murder. There are three victims, 
And it's, it's one of only a dozen unsolved crimes, unsolved homicides um, that the Littleton Police Department has. So this is like a crime that, that they're not used to. This isn't something that happens in their backyard. Littleton, Colorado is a close-knit community where multiple generations of families have raised their children, attended our schools and churches, played on our parks and on our wonderful trails, and worked hard to support their families. Because there is such a strong sense of community in Littleton, what happens to one is often felt by all. Well, you mentioned the new $30,000 reward. Before I let you go, if anyone listening to this does have any information about these killings, where should they direct that? Yeah, so as I mentioned a little bit earlier, there's Metro Denver Crime Stoppers, and you can remain anonymous, completely anonymous. They have a tip line that's operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That number is 720-913-STOP or 7867, so 720-913-STOP. Uh, or you can also go to their website. It's Metro Denver Crime Stoppers. Yeah, Metro Denver Crime Stoppers.org. Sorry about that. Um, and you can submit a tip anonymously. Um, and in this case, like I said, the reward is up to $30,000, which is much larger than their typical rewards, which are usually up to $2,000. So you can tell they, they really want to get this case solved before, you know, uh, while the family members of these victims are, are, you know, still around to see it since it's been 20 years, they're all, you know, getting on in age and they want to make sure that they get this closure for all of their relatives friends, family. Right. Well, Janet Orvitz with Nine News in Denver, please do keep us posted on this story moving forward. We appreciate you sharing it with us. Thanks. I hope I get to come back and talk about it being solved sometime soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also share your thoughts on any and all of the stories we cover in our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault. For more podcasts from Vault Studios, visit vaultstudios.com. That's all for today. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond.